1: We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hi, everyone. Just before we get this next history hack outing going, we would just like to extend the most incredible thanks to everybody for the support you've given us so far. The podcast has just passed 1 million downloads, which has completely blown our minds. So from Alex, Zach, myself, all the guys down the pub, we just want to say thank you so much. And to keep doing what you're doing, spread the word, tell your friends, like, subscribe, review. Remember there's a Patreon, it's got its own Discord channel now where there's chat and things on it. There's Ko-Fi for dropping us a tip for an episode you'd like. There's the bookshop where all the latest books from our great guests are. And of course. Just tell everybody about us, because the next million downloads, we hope, will come a lot quicker. And who knows what is going to come up in the next year. So thank you once again. I'm going to stop waffling. Here's the show.
3: Looking back now, I have to tell myself, did I really fly one of those aeroplanes? It's such a long time ago. Maybe it's all, maybe it all happened to someone else and I'm just making it uh, making it up.
4: It's a, a living thing and it was a living thing. There were times almost when she spoke to you, or you felt she did. I could still go to a lamp now and press the right buttons, I think. <laughs> I'd love to. <laughs> Pure nostalgia, pure nostalgia. Every time I see it in the air, I say, God, look at that, beautiful. And there's no question about it, it transformed Bomber Command by its pure operational capacity. It was an amazing aircraft.
2: Hello and welcome to History Hacks, dedicated Second World War Aviation podcast, Hedgehopping with me, Matt Bone. I'm really excited today because I'm joined by David Farad, who is a director and editor, and most importantly, the co-director of the upcoming Lancaster documentary, which will be released today, if you're listening to this on the day of release. David's worked on lots of films we've just been chatting about McCullen, which he was editor on, which is one of my favorite documentaries, but also the recent Spitfire ones. We're going to talk about that, but more importantly, we're going to get into the Lancaster film. I've not seen it yet, so I'm going to be trying to get him to tell it to me beforehand so I can compare and contrast and see if he gets it right when I see it next week. But there we go. So, David, thank you for joining us. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you.
5: Thank you for asking me on on the show.
2: So we're, we're recording this a week out from release. How are you feeling?
5: Well, I mean, we finished the film several months ago. So unless <laughs> <laughs> something goes terribly wrong, I feel good. I mean, it, it's you know it's always exciting when you've worked on a project. We've been doing this for five years. Unbelievably, it overlapped with Spitfire slightly. So Spitfire took five years as well. So we did our first interview on Lancaster in 2017, December 2017, with or November, in fact. With Johnny Johnson, who's the last surviving Dan buster, and then Spitfire was released in July 2018, and then have you know have made other films and edited other projects along the way. But it's the the nature of a film like this, and in fact like Spitfire, was such that you know it takes a very very long time to make them because there's so much to do. It's not just you know, your research and finding the veterans, but you know, this is an independent cinema production. And the and the, big, the biggest problem really in independent cinema is raising funds. And it wasn't helped in this case by the fact that it was Brexit and then COVID. <laughs> so that's two of the reasons why it's taken a very long time.
2: I would have thought with Brexit, a project like this would have been right up that street for, for getting funding.
5: Well, you might think so. But the reality is, it was an uncertain time, if you can cast your mind back to then, nobody really knew what was going to happen. And so there was a lot of uncertainty and people were not about to part with large sums of money, because they didn't know what was around the corner. So that was that was the real backdrop to to Brexit. And then we all know the COVID story that was uh, it rather stopped everything in its tracks. But we're we're back on we're back on track now, but back on the runway, and ready to take off.
2: So let's get into this. So when you're making Spitfire, were you already thinking Lancaster is clearly the next one, or was you know w- was it a logical jump to make to, to Lancaster, or was there a few others in the mix that you could have done?
5: Well, we had discussions, funnily enough. I mean, Spitfire uh, came from my great friend and collaborator on this film, and both both films is Ant Palmer and Ant and I had known each other for 20 years we worked together 20 years ago and then because of timetables and scheduling we never managed to work together but we always stayed in touch and we would meet up occasionally for a pint and and he knew that I got into feature docs he'd seen McCullen for instance and we don't live that far apart and and he suggested meeting up for for a pint and that's where he suggested would there be an interest in a feature doc about Spitfire and I said yeah definitely and and you know the rest is history kind of thing but when we were I suppose halfway through making that film, in fact, probably three years into the five, we went to film at RAF Coningsby. And we had this idea whilst we were making uh, Spitfire all along that we wanted to compare then and now. You know, so Coningsby was a great place to go because not only is the Battle of Britain Memorial flight based there and they had Spitfires that we wanted to film, although we were never going to film air to air with them, but also they had an operational fighter base, you know, Typhoons are based there. And so we thought there's a great opportunity to get shots of the Spitfire and the Typhoon in the same frame. And, you know, you could clearly see the difference. <laughs> One's a lot pointier than the other. <laughs> uh, but I remember when we, when we first went there and we went into the hangar where the BBMF is based or where it's all its airplanes are based. And there's all these beautiful Spitfires and hurricanes. And then at the other end, there's this absolutely huge and awesome, in the Old Testament, meaning of the word, bomber painted black, that towers over everything. And I said to Anne, that's the next film. And that's where it started. So yeah, about two-thirds of the way into the making of Spitfire. And funnily enough, on that same trip to Coningsby, we bumped into somebody by sheer you know, happenstance called Steve Darlow, who I know that you know. And uh, Steve was up there visiting with a, with a veteran. Steve's a publisher, aviation publisher and author. And he was up there with a veteran, George Dunn, and we got chatting with Steve and he said, what are you guys doing? We told him about Spitfire. And I said, but, you know, you're a Bomber Command historian. Do you think that, you know, would there be interest in, in, in a film about Lancaster? And he said, without doubt. So Steve was a, a fantastic conduit from then on to the veterans because he knows so many of them, having you know, published their memoirs and all the rest of it. So he became absolutely crucial to, to making the film.
2: Yes, we will be getting Steve on to to chat many many things, but that's that's another show. I, I I suppose the first question really to to get in is, I thought Spitfire was very much a celebration of the aircraft. It was you know it was you know, the 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 score was stirring. It looks yeah, Spitfire. It looks beautiful at everything. Lancaster, by the nature of being the bomber of bomber command, is going to come with a slightly different tone. So I guess when you started researching it and trying to figure out how you wanted to put this together, how did you approach marrying that up? Because it does come with a lot of baggage.
5: It certainly does. I mean, you know, I've been a, a lifelong aviator. History fan, so I'm not coming at it just from a point of view. This is a job. This is this is a real passion project. Both of them have been, and yeah, Spitfire absolutely was a film about this iconic, amazing airplane. And the film turned out really to be. It felt complicated to make it at the time, but it it turned out to be about the defence of freedom. But Lancaster was always, as you say, going to be different because Lancaster is about the much more difficult problem of how do you win a war, and that's not always beautiful you know, involves some tough, awful decisions on the part of the commanders, requires extraordinary commitment on the behalf of the crews to take part in it night after night, you know, going on these operations over Germany and other countries. So we knew from the off that it would be different. The film also is different because the Spitfire is a single-seater uh, fighter plane. The Lancaster is, is crewed by seven people, seven men. And so the nature of the way that we could tell the story would be different because we weren't just going to be talking to the pilot. We wanted to talk to the flight engineer, the navigator, the wireless operator, the bomb aimer, the gunners. It
3: was noisy, uncomfortable, cramped, difficult to move in, but did the job. It was basically a flying bay, wasn't it? When you got in the aircraft, the pilot would go through, with his parachute to sit on, and then the bomb aimer would go right through, so he was down on the floor. I had the best view in the aircraft in the bombing hedge, lying prone, looking down. And then, the rear gunner, I would get in and lock him in and put his parachute outside because there wasn't room for that. I was very comfortable in my turret. I always said, I was the first to start flying and the last to land.
5: And so we felt that we could tell this story in a more like a mosaic feel so that everyone could have their contribution. And underscoring all of this is this fact that, you know, the Lancaster and its crews were called upon to do some pretty devastating things. So we wanted really to try and get under the skin of what went on in those wartime years. And it, it wasn't easy actually, because we, we knew, I mean, there is a morality issue and especially from today's point of view, people don't understand it. So we knew we had to try and get the context of what was happening across. A lot of people, especially from the safety of today and you know, generations removed from the war, the understanding that this was an existential war, You know, we came very close to being invaded by the nazis and the nazis you know nazism was a terrible creed and you know, the nazis had a terrible regime running not just in in occupied europe but even in germany you know it was any dissent was crushed and if you were an undesirable if you were jewish or gay or roma or whatever you were in a concentration camp and you didn't come out and so that's the backdrop to this it was an existential war so for all the horrible unpleasantness of area bombing and you know Ant and I used to say there's two D's in Lancaster (laughs) of course course there's none but there's two D's in Lancaster these are the only things that people know about it Dambusters and Dresden and they were the two Ds that we knew we, we wanted in the film. And, and in, in particular, with Dresden, we knew we had to kind of tackle it head on. There was no kind of, oh, by the way, this happened. And moving on, the war ended. You know, it, it, you have to confront it head on. And for quite a while, actually, Dresden was at the top of the film. But we decided, it, with Steve Darlow was, was quite instrumental in this. He thought it was really important that we didn't start with Dresden because you'll turn, he, he thought you would turn all the, your audience off. And I think he was right. So we put it into its correct chronological place in the the story. Once we'd done that, it was quite weird how the story builds to Dresden. You know, we, we'd always, we'd planned before COVID and everything. We'd planned, we were going to go to Berlin. We'd set up a filming trip to Berlin. We were going to take two of the veterans there. We were going to meet some German, you know, former German civilians at the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church in Berlin. For those of you who are familiar with it, it's called the Broken Tooth. It was destroyed in a RAF raid in 1943, and just the tower remains. And it's really iconic in Berlin. So we were going to film a whole sequence there. And we weren't going to finish in Dresden, but ultimately because of COVID, couldn't go to Germany. And so the film naturally built in its narrative towards Dresden. And ultimately, Dresden was an all-Lancaster raid. We do deal briefly in the film with Stirlings and Halifaxes. But just like in Spitfire, where we had to acknowledge the hurricane and and the part played in in the war by the hurricane, but the film was called Spitfire and was about the, the Spitfire. And so the same is with Lancaster. We acknowledge the other airplanes. And in fact, some of our interviewees didn't fly in Lancasters, but they did the same job. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the film builds naturally towards Dresden, and then we tell the Dresden story, and then we reflect on it afterwards. And that's where you learn about how, you know, the, the crews lived with the legacy of that for the rest of their lives. You know, this it's almost 80 years since the end of the war. And for a, a very large proportion of those 80 years, people have been pointing their fingers at the veterans and saying, you did this, you did this. They they weren't given any choice. You could say, I was obeying orders and all the rest of it. But that's not the point. Germany had to be beaten. Nazi Germany had to be beaten. And using the technology of the time, there was only one way they could do it. And unfortunately, the people of Dresden paid the price. But If the cities hadn't have been bombed, if the factories hadn't been bombed, Germany hadn't been bombed, the war would have carried on for years and years and years. And so it was the unfortunate cost of industrialised warfare.
4: fought my war from five miles up. I dropped at one time maybe seven or eight tons of bombs on somewhere, came back, had my breakfast, out on the booze the next day, thought nothing of it. It was totally another world. But I realized that what I had done was fundamentally wrong. but the circumstances were such that we did it. And I can't reconcile those two viewpoints. I I can't reconcile them.
2: It's that morality of hindsight element, isn't it? It's looking back from the safety of 50, 60, 70 years and, and projecting one's surroundings upon that. And I having an uncle who was at the tail end of the war, navigator on Lancasters, his his mind all the time was it was a horrible job, but it we needed to do it. And he only ever flew a few proper operations. But it's it was interesting and chatting to chaps like Colin Bell about it is it was the job and it, it needed to be done to win. And it's as a very white, safe, middle class sort of chap, it, it, it sometimes your brain does wander off into into those areas. So I I think that's really exciting that you're looking into that. But let's get into the aircraft, the the filming, less morality as it's early on a Friday morning, finding Lancasters. We've seen the trailer and there are some absolutely stunning shots. I had some mates on the show last week and Adam Berry's quite right in saying that sort of image of a Lancaster flying right at you is, is one of the most beautiful aviation shots there. You got the BBMS Lancaster, Just Jane involved as well. Did you just talk to the Canadians? Did COVID put that to bed? Yes, he's nodding. So, yeah, all
5: that. How, all
2: how, that. how do you find Lancasters? Even though there's only three movable ones in the world.
5: Well, I mean, we're lucky that two of them were here. We were talking to the Canadian Warbird Heritage people, and you know, we were hoping to go out there and film. COVID did stop that completely, but bizarrely. There weren't many silver linings to COVID, but one of them was the fact that the BBMF was not flying their length for air shows, which meant that it had spare hours on the airframe because they limit the number of hours they put on it each year. And we wanted to involve John Dibbs, who was the aerial photographer on Spitfire. Again, COVID cast all sorts of doubt on that. But in the end, uh, in a gap between the lockdowns, we spoke to him and he agreed to come over because uh, he lives in Seattle. And you know, we would have to pay for his quarantine and all the rest of it. I mean, it, this is our 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 budget, which is you know so close closely guarded and protected, and an awful lot of it was going on on him. But then we also knew that there was only one opportunity to film this thing, and without it. We didn't have the film you know the, the usp of spitfire had been this amazing aerial footage so we wanted the same thing in lancaster you know we didn't want there's there is no cgi in spitfire and there is no cgi in lancaster it is all the real airplane made even more extraordinary by the fact when you look at some of it you think is that cgi <laughs> and i know it's not it's quite incredible so john came over we you know, we had a good relationship with the BBMF because we were now a known quantity because they'd seen Spitfire you know they even had the poster up in their office etc you know, etc et so the door was slightly more open than it would have been previously because they get inundated with requests of filmage you might imagine and and so uh, Dibsey spoke to the then uh, commanding officer uh, Mark Discom and they had a discussion and the discussion was basically that they still had a requirement to train their aircrew. You know, they couldn't just, cause everyone, they, they all fly modern aircraft, you know, so they need that refresher training, if you like, on, on a tail dragger powered by four Merlins, you know, you can't just get in it and start it up and fly off. So they needed to still do training you know, navigational training, flight training. And so they agreed to let us film one of these training sessions. And then we said, well, look, you know, these are the things we'd like to get out of it. Is there any chance you could fly up over the dams at Durban water? You know, because the key word is always variety in this stuff, because as an editor, you you could spend three hours getting one beautiful shot. But I don't want that. I want three hours of material that I can use throughout the film. And and You don't want
2: to be repeating the same stuff again because everyone goes, oh, we've seen that.
5: Yeah. Yeah, even if it's if, even if it's a different shot. So, so yes, yeah, so shots over the dams, shots up in the clouds, shots over the sea, shots over the land. I mean, th- those those kind of things. And we had a debate about the, what the filming platform would be, and we settled in the end on helicopter because we think it gives most again most variety. And sure enough, in September, September twenty twenty, I guess it was, uh, we went up to Coningsby and, and had two flights with the Lank, so their their daylight navigational trip, and then it was about sort of three hours, I think, and then a takeoff at dusk to give another pilot an opportunity to to do the takeoff, one circuit and then land. And we got, got it in the can, and it was absolutely incredible. And, you know, it was all shot in the day, and we knew that, of course, the Lank flew mostly at night, so part of the discussion with Dibsey was about right, these these are the kind of shots that we're looking for. Shoot it. There's a, there's an old film term, you know, dates back to the days of Hollywood, you know, day for night. Because especially, you know, back in the 40s, 50s, you know, you could you couldn't really shoot at, at night time. It was difficult because the film stocks weren't fast enough. So they would they found a way of filming during the day you would drop the exposure there would be the sun would be in a certain position no harsh shadows and that's day for night shooting and so that was part of the brief try and try and get that so we can do it and it was really very successful so that when we had the material we edited me the editing of the film took over a year to get that amount of time You know, I have to thank our producers for going with that schedule because on a tv project you, you get far less time this is the one of the joys of working on feature docs is you have the time to explore every bit of your material and so we edited for a year and then we went into final post-production which is where all the kind of gloss is put onto it and one of the things is there's a, a step you go through called grading and the grading is color grading and you put it into a quite a sophisticated machine called a base light and then uh, a very talented person twiddles the knobs, uh, makes it look beautiful. And we said to Jack, the, the, the colorist on this, you know, we want it to be day for night. And he did some absolutely amazing stuff, masking off areas of, of sky, darkening them and all the rest of it to create this very convincing day for night effect. you know. And, and, and suddenly your, your backlit sunlight becomes moonlight. And so there's an absolutely incredible shot. I can't remember it. Probably in the trailer, where you see what appears to be the Lang flying at night. And so that's that's amazing. So it's not CGI, but it is graded.
2: <laughs> it, it, just from the trailer and, and the shots that you've put up on social media over the last little while, it looks incredible. Spitfire looks incredible as well. But you sort of see it, and you're like, yeah. You know, film buff, you go, yeah, that's day for night, but you think that's really well done. That's it it looks fantastic. I cannot wait to see it on a nice, nice big, big screen. Probably at my my local, but there we are. The inverse of that, finding aircraft is, you know, we we we're in the sad situation that we're losing the veterans quite quickly. Starting five years ago to now, I I suppose it would have been a harder task to do it now because you, you do have some wonderful interviewees. Again from the, the clips that you've had
5: Well, the, the miracle is that we did it all except for one interview, which was actually done in Horsham. <laughs> all the interviews, bar one, were in the cam before COVID. I mean, and that is, that is nothing short of miraculous because not only you know, did COVID stop us, everyone, from, from doing whatever they uh, you know, would normally be doing, but it also meant that the, the, these veterans, the youngest of whom was 95, were in that most vulnerable of groups So we've interviewed 38 in total, and over a period of about, I suppose, probably about two years, two and a half years maybe. And it does feel nothing short of miraculous that we got their stories told, and we've lost almost half of them now.
4: The most atmospheric place you can ever be is in a bomber station. If there's been a stand-down for two days, there's a station dance, and every station has got a dance band of some sort. They used to use the hangers. They push the aeroplanes back. There's a bowl. There's, there's the station band belting out Glenn Miller. It's, it's electric. Electric. We laughed and joked with each other, and some paired off. Some were a bit naughty and. You know, these boys became very precious, very precious. They were bomber crew. Just to hold hands or hug a boy was was magic.
3: Beer and girls, and this was the. We drank an awful lot. At least when you were flying six eight pints a night was nothing you never knew
4: the guy that you were drinking whether was going to be there tomorrow or not we took it for granted
1: in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
5: You know, the, the extraordinary thing about Spitfire is that because they were slightly older, the Spitfire veterans, you know, it's amazing the difference like two or three years makes. And we lost, even after the Spitfire premiere, within two weeks, we'd lost three of our veterans, you know, Tom Neill, Geoffrey Wellham, Mary Ellis. It was extraordinary how fast they, they went and how, how quickly they went. And with Lancaster, we're so conscious of the fact that these stories, that they are, they're not just, I mean, precious is almost the wrong word, but, you know, it's a privilege to go and interview the veterans and they're very they are very ordinary people like you and I, you know, they stepped up, they did a job for five years in their life, and then they got on with their lives again. But their lives have changed completely, of course. But I think when you reach, or this is what we have found, is that when you're in your 90s, without doubt, you know, you're facing the end of your life. and, And you have this, these stories that you've probably told your family and Maybe some of them have spoken to journalists or some of them have been interviewed before, but for many of them, they'd never they'd never been interviewed before. Jack Dark, who lives in Horsham, uh, had never been interviewed about it before. There's a chap, Peter Kelsey, who lived in my village in, here in Surrey, and he'd never been interviewed before. So we had probably about a good third to half of our veterans had never actually been interviewed before. They'd, they'd have told their stories to friends and family and what have you. So it felt like, it was the last time they were ever going to tell their stories in such detail. And so, again, that, that plays into this thing of the, the privilege of it, of, of doing the research, of asking them the questions and, and then engaging in the, the discussion of an interview to draw their stories out and then to edit them together. So it's an amazing part of the job, actually. You know, as I said before, it's aviation and the history of the World Wars, I suppose, has been an abiding sort of interest of mine throughout my life. And to actually meet people who flew in the Battle of Britain or bombed Pina to actually meet them is uh, incredible. But I hope as well that that transmits itself through the film so that viewers of the film will sit there and feel that they've been in the company of these veterans and learnt from them because they've got so much to teach us about, you know, against the backdrop of you know, what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. You know, you know, the Second World War was a fight for freedom against tyranny, and that's exactly what Ukraine is going through at the moment.
3: Looking back now, I have to tell myself, did I really fly one of those aeroplanes? It's such a long time ago. Maybe, it's all, maybe it all happened to someone else, and I'm just making it, uh, making it up.
4: It's a, a living thing, and it was a living thing. There were times, almost, when she spoke to you, or you felt she did. I could still go to a lamp now and press the right buttons, I think. <laughs> I'd love to. <laughs> Pure nostalgia, pure nostalgia. Every time I see it in the air, I say, God, look at that beautiful. And there's no question about it. It transformed bomber command by its pure operational capacity.
2: It was an amazing aircraft. I, I was very happy to see the clip of Ursula. Pop up on uh, the Twitter feed the other day. And growing up, you, you probably start with, you know, Slaughterhouse Five and, and realize actually this, there's another side to this. For you, with the, your German interviewees, how was that in the room after speaking to the Bomber Command veterans to speak of a, a survivor of the campaign on the other side? What did that do with your head, for want of <laughs> a better expression?
5: It didn't really do anything. You know, we, we always knew that we wanted to try and, and get the, the other point of view. I mean, one of the criticisms, funnily enough, on Spitfire was that you didn't have any German veterans. Well, there weren't any left alive that we knew of. And we did a lot of research to try and, and find you know, Luftwaffe veterans um, who'd flown against Spitfires. There were none that we could find. With Lancaster, as I said earlier, we had planned this trip to, to Berlin. We wanted a, a sequence at the end of the film about reconciliation. And, you know, with the German veterans, uh, you know, I call them veterans, they were you know, civilians who'd been children at the time, pretty much. we spoke to a couple of them and one chap said you have to remember that yes we lived through the bombing but three years later those very same men those very same airplanes were stopping us from starving in the berlin airlift so you know there's, there's different points of view wherever you look but we wanted to try and get something of the german viewpoint across we spoke to peter spoden who's the last surviving night fighter pilot and he agreed to be interviewed and then And I I know he's been interviewed before because I've seen some of the stuff that he's done. And then he got sort of cold feet and decided that he didn't want sleepless nights about thinking about, you know, stirring up all those memories again. So he withdrew and then COVID came to kind of close that door anyway.
3: so different. Lancaster was so different. It was always the best aeroplane you ever flew. But when you finished your operational flying, you realize how bloody lucky you must have been to survive, you know, when you think of all the friends that you've lost. This affected you for the rest of your life. At night now, when I go to bed and Tonight, going to bed, talking about all this during the day, when I go to bed, put my head down on the pillow, I can see flak bursting, little red lights, flak bursting. But it doesn't bother me, I know what it is, it's all right, no problem whatsoever. But these memories are still there.
5: Uh, With Ursula, it was a real chance encounter with her daughter that led us to her. She lives in the UK now, she went to school in Dresden, by sheer good chance it was half term the week that raid took place and so she was in Chemnitz which was south of Dresden so she wasn't in Dresden for the actual raid but she saw it and she heard it so there's an amazing opportunity to speak to somebody who was an eyewitness and again she'd never been interviewed about it never spoken about it apart from her family and her account of it was absolutely incredible so to get her viewpoint in the film was incredible. And at one stage, we had, and I said earlier that we did start with Dresden, we started with her and we spread it through her, her story through the film. But in the end, it wasn't quite strong enough to do that, to work as a backbone to the film. And also, you know, the film is called Lancaster, so the focus tends to always need to swing back to the aeroplane. And even though if you really want to know how many rivets there are in a Lancaster, read a book. We're not going to tell you in the film, but the, the Lancaster is the vehicle for everyone's stories. And in the end, we decided that we would just use Ursula where we needed to use her. But she she tells, you, she tells you what it's like to be on the receiving end, just as Laurie Davis at the beginning of the film tells you what it was like to be in the Blitz. So, you know, there's, there is a contrast you know favorite exam question isn't it? compare and contrast <laughs> well, you know when you are making a film, it's a bit like writing an essay, but just with pictures and sound
2: i'm 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 sitting here, dear listener, watching David with a big smile on his face. He's clearly quite happy with this. I'm really excited I was excited beforehand now, so hopefully this is wessing your appetite for it i I think that's just getting back on point, that sort of compare and contrast, we had Will O'Dell on who did Pathfinders, the book last year. And that, that was the same thing he was saying was finding that, you know, the the Blitz Coventry through to Battle Berlin and, and on to Dresden. I th- that I thought made his book the better for it. And to hear that you guys uh, have done the same with those sort of interviews is, I think it's important because like we were saying at the beginning, it's It's a funny aircraft like the Spitfire. I think it's the most beautiful thing. It sounds incredible. I remember I was nine years old sitting on Queen Street in Toronto. The first time Vera flew over Toronto and this noise just literally stopped everything in the street as people walked up and saw her go over. And I remember my dad saying, imagine that a thousand times louder. And we don't know what that's like but to hear from someone who experienced that more than once that drone constantly for hours upon end and then the, that that as someone who can get a little bit overexcited about airplanes and these stories it's a chastening one because you just have to change that mindset a bit and it, it sounds like you guys have, have caught that which is which is really exciting so i guess now what's next the, the typhoon movie that you, you must must be wanting to make because we all we all want a good Hawker typhoon movie
5: yeah oh, you <laughs> know you're doing it well <laughs> it, it, it's an interesting thing isn't it because uh, I mean I'm a bit far people said, you're gonna do hurricane but the, these films that that we've had the privilege to, to make they're not just airplane films films they're about so much more than airplanes and i love airplanes i love the hurricane my, my dad's favorite plane the hurricane so it was a betrayal when we made spitfire not really he loved it but but the reality i
2: can, was, get, I can get behind that
5: yeah but, <laughs> the, but the reality was in spitfire is and part of this is you know it's so late in the day of people's stories and, and what have you so we in, in spitfire we couldn't just get by by interviewing spitfire pilots we don't we'd have only had for the Battle of Britain. So, in fact, you know, Paul Farnes, Tom Neill, Tony Pullinger, they were hurricane pilots. But just like I said earlier, you know, it was the same job that they were doing. And so the Spitfire story, which, of course, is also a dramatic story with, you know, the seaplane races, Mitchell dying. It's a natural dramatic structure as well for a, for a storyteller and with Lancaster again so as we were putting the story together it just felt absolutely epic as a story and the way that things fell into it you know the disasters of the early years these other aircraft coming through which showed looked like they'd have promise and no they just you know weren't, weren't up to it and the Lanc arrives at the same time as Arthur Harris you know the controversial new leader of bomber command who's going to take them from the the depths of their despair if you like and he's got this amazing new weapon at his disposable the Lancaster but he's also got new technology navigational technology which is going to help those bombers find their targets because before then there's some extraordinary statistic that sort of like only one plane in 50 got a bomb anywhere closer to the target than five miles you know apparently at the time the Germans were totally unsure about what the targets were the RAF were trying to bomb, because bombs were just scattered across you know, Germany. And yet all the crews came back and said, yes, we bombed the target. You know, it was, it was a really d- difficult task. So Lancaster covers the bases for Stirling, Halifax, Wellington, whatever. So the next story has to be about a completely different kind of aeroplane. And so the next story is Mosquito. Merlin engines again, <laughs> sorry to fans of the Bristol radial engines and what have you. I mean, we did think about doing the B-17. It would certainly give us amazing access to the American market and what have you. But there was a there was a really good documentary made just a few years ago called something like Into the Blue or the Dark Blue or something. And that used remastered archive footage from the Memphis Bell documentary. And, you know, I thought that was really well done. So I thought, What's the point of just trying to remake that? The Mosquito is the natural next step because we've done one Merlin, we've done four, we've got two. But also Mosquito represents something different. And I think the story of the Mosquito, again, coming out of racing aircraft, the Comet Racer, this single-minded idea that if you made a plane out of wood, it wouldn't use the resources that the rest of the aviation industry wanted to use metal And then the fact that it became this extraordinarily versatile machine that could do any job it was asked to do. And ultimately, it could carry the same, it could carry a greater bomb load to Berlin than the B-17, you know, which had 10 men in it. And here you had two. And it flew so high and so fast that it was very difficult to intercept. I mean, it's an extraordinary airplane. And that story, I think, is why I want to do that as the next one. But you know we're facing even greater challenges now because you know we started Lancaster five years ago and we got 38 veterans. There were hundreds of thousands of air crew who flew in Lancs. There were never as many who flew in Mosquitos. And also we're five years later. So mm-hmm. the people we're looking to interview now and have started interviewing, uh, 98, 99, 100. Yeah, so it's a, it's a much smaller pool of veterans we're looking at. I'm a big fan of the mosquito.
2: I think that, that'll be that'll be a great problem. It's, it's the Swiss Army knife of aircraft, isn't it? it? Did everything, does everything. And personally, I kind of think it's the one that should be in that sort of Spitfire-y, ro- rose tinted glasses thing, just because the impact that it had. But you know, again, it was doing stuff away, whereas Spitfire Hurricane was had the idea of being above everybody, keeping them, keeping them safe. So it's uh, it's a dynamic I'd love to explore in an, in an episode of the, the psychology of what you could see versus what you can't. And when it comes to aircraft, but that, that, that sounds really exciting. And of course, Rod Lewis has got his buzzing around Texas, hasn't he? So get, well, <laughs> there's,
5: there's, there's four of them in North America, one in Canada and three in the U S there's a very small production line in New Zealand. And then there's also there's the people's mosquito here in the UK, and it'll be quicker for us to make the film than it went for them to get that airplane flying. But the ambition <laughs> is is laudable, and we want to feature their story in the film as well. I mean, don't start booking your cinema tickets for another five years, but uh, <laughs> hopefully, we can tell a good story.
2: Well, pr- providing we're still going in five years, we'll have to have you have you back to to chat about that one as well. Absolutely, love to. So, David, thank you so much. The film, by the time this drops, is out now, people. Don't go see that other one with jets flying around and and things like that, because, to be fair, we've probably already seen it. I'm still going to go see it. Go see Lancaster. It's getting a fantastic release. You guys are doing some amazing events across the country as well. There's one at um, Duxford, which looks really, really, really exciting. So where can people go to find the best listings for it?
5: You need to go to our distributor's website, altitude.film forward slash Lancaster. And and that will tell you where it's on. There's a thing you fill in that works out your location and will tell you the the nearest cinemas to you. So I think it's showing in about 30 or 40 cinemas on the 27th. Some of them just for one night, others for longer. And then it, it, it expands a bit. So it'll probably be showing for at least a month, hopefully somewhere near you. It'll also be available on Blu-ray, DVD, digital,
1: etc.
2: But you need to see it on a big screen, people. I'll yeah. put the, the link to that in the description so you can just click on it right now and, and book your tickets before you go see Top Gun, people, because, you know, priorities here. Support British film and uh, support British Lancasters uh, and Canadian oh. ones for that matter as well. Super, thank you so much, David. This has been a pleasure. Thank you for giving us the time.
5: Not, not at all, no problem. Thank you for your interest. I'm sure Joe
4: thought that the lower we got, the easier it'd be to estimate the dropping point. So on the 10th run, we were down to 30 feet. And when I said Bongong, thank Christ came from Red Surrey just like that.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen